1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday. Well, no, it's the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. It's always a little bit off putting when you're trying to remember what day it is after a three day holiday. Anyway, glad to have you with us. James Blend is under the weather, but Clark Hilton is here, back from vacation and engineering today's program. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Amy Wolfe, author of Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World, and we'll also look at uh, some of the headlines from the last several days. Well, of course, we're here on Tuesday and weren't here on Monday because that was Labor Day. And thinking about um, Labor Day, what it means and a bit of its history, I'm reminded that the time of the United States was founded. Most people were farmers, they worked uh, trades like baker, butcher, Carpenter, cabinet maker, and so on. Then the Industrial Revolution began in that late 18th century. Coal was uh, mined in Britain, but mines kept filling up with water. Well, Scottish inventor James Watt he came up with an invention to pump water out of mines—a steam pump. Well, steam was soon harnessed in the early 19th century to not just pump power, but. Uh, it, Railroad steam engines, steamboats, textile manufacturing machines, and so on. This led to the creation of the uh, factories, which could mass produce items inexpensively. Europeans uh, manufactured products. They were imported into the United States. Well, soon Americans built factories. Originally, there was no federal income tax. Oh, I just have to stop and ponder that for a moment. There was no federal income tax. Okay, I digress. The federal government was financed primarily from excise taxes on items like salt, tobacco, liquor, and tariff taxes on imports from European factories. Well, tariff taxes made European products more expensive, motivating consumers to buy products manufactured in America. Well, most of America's factories were located in northern states. The tariff taxes that helped the northern states hurt the southern states, as the South was predominantly agricultural and had few factories to uh, protect. Well, at one point, nearly 90 percent of the federal budget came from tariff taxes uh, collected at southern ports. Well, this fueled animosity between the states leading up to the Civil War. Of course, that wasn't the primary or only issue. Well, after the Civil War, the North passed even more tariff taxes, which successfully allowed northern factories to grow enormous. Manufacturers produced items like clothes, glass, dishes, um. Uh, Farm tools for a fraction of the previous cost. Machines freed women up from tedious daily tasks such as um, hand weaving thread, um, hand sewing clothes and hand washing clothes. Instead of carrying water from a well, pumps and pipes brought water directly into our homes. Well, new ways of making stronger iron and steel led to the building of bridges, skyscrapers, steamboats and mining machinery. Railroads began taking people safely and inexpensively across the entire nation, and that opened up unprecedented mobility and opportunity. Inventions and advances in manufacturing made more goods available at cheaper prices. Well, This resulted in Americans experiencing the fastest increase in the standard of living of any people in world history. Factories had a continual source of workers from the millions of immigrants who not only got a job, but learned the language and trade skills. President Grover Cleveland, he dedicated the Statue of Liberty in 1886 to welcome those immigrants. Well, immigrants were anxious to assimilate, learn the English language, um, and swear allegiance to their new country. Rags to riches stories became a pretty popular literary genre um, where hard work, honesty, and strength through adversity led to success. Then in 1867, Horatio Alger began publishing a best-selling series of novels such as Ragged Dick and uh, Strong and Steady or Paddle Your Own Canoe and Shifting for Himself or Gilbert Grayson's Fortune. These were all popular titles at the time. These were stories about immigrants, impoverished orphans or homeless street boys who rose from humble beginnings to success through honesty, strength, through adversity and the Protestant work ethic. In 1894, Orson Suet Marden, he wrote fishing or rather pushing to the uh, uh, to the front, and in 1897 founded Success Magazine, publishing inspirational stories of success in life through common-sense principles and well-rounded virtues. Immigrants were not a financial burden on the government, as there were no government welfare programs. Extended family members, churches, and individuals giving charity provided the welfare net. No one was forced to work in factories. Nevertheless, laborers began to organize for better working conditions. Some immigrants brought with them from Europe socialist and anarchist ideas Ideas and um, exacerbated labor tensions to further their larger goal of, of um, dismantling capitalist systems in order to set up a socialist economy. Organizing flyers were written in the English and German languages. In May of 1886, a peaceful protest in Chicago near the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company plant um, turned into a, a hay market riot. A peaceful protester threw a dynamite bomb at the police. The blast and subsequent violence resulted in seven police officers and four civilians killed, along with dozens wounded. To commemorate the incident, they chose May 1st to be an annual International Workers' Day. Another incident was a railroad strike in 1894. The ideal factory uh, setting was created by George Pullman who founded the Pullman Railroad Sleeping Car Company just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Pullman saw that workers needed a place to live, so he built them houses in a safe little village around the factory, with rent deducted from paychecks. To save them the trouble of traveling to the markets, he set up stores on site. These could be very exploitive, as you might know from history. Workers were paid company scrip, similar to food stamps, which were redeemable at the company-owned grocery stores. It was thought to be a utopian workers' community at least by some, it worked well for over a decade until something happened. There was a nationwide economic depression in 1893 and orders for railroad sleeping cars suddenly dropped off. To keep the company afloat, George Pullman had to make cuts in wages and lay hundreds of employees off, though for the time being, rent and groceries stayed the same price. Some immigrants from Europe spread Karl Marx's idea of a class struggle. Employees were distraught as they had grown completely dependent on the company. Some employees walked off their jobs demanding higher pay, and lower rent, being unaware that the reason for the cuts was that the uh, company needed to stay in business during the national economic uh, crash. A leader of the strikes was Eugene V. Debs, a high school dropout. Debs got a job cleaning grease from freight engines. He was promoted to locomotive fireman and rose in the uh, Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. He briefly served as a a Terre Haute City Clerk and one-term Indiana State Representative. When the nation experienced the financial crisis, he agitated and organized a strike of railroad workers in 198, rather 1894. Well, soon railroad workers across the nation boycotted trains carrying Pullman cars. There was rioting, um, pillaging, and burning of railroad cars, destroying a, an estimated eighty million dollars worth of property in twenty-seven states. A New York Times editorial. In July of 1894, called Debs a lawbreaker at large and enemy of the human race. Well, Debs' rebellion became a national issue when it interrupted the uh, trains delivering mail. We'll tell you more about that when we return as we reflect on, well, where did Labor Day come from and what's that really all about? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine
1: Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll hear from Amy Wolf: Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. I've been talking about a little of the background of Labor Day with um, strike leader Eugene Debs. Um, He was a New York Times, or there was a New York Times editorial. In July of uh, 1894, it called Debs a lawbreaker at large, an enemy of the human race. Debs' rebellion became a national issue when it interrupted the trains delivering mail. Well, President Grover Cleveland, he declared the strike a federal crime. He deployed 12,000 U.S. Army troops to break up the strike. More violence erupted. Two men were killed. Well, Debs was arrested for mail obstruction, put in prison for six months, where he ravenously read Karl Marx's Das Kapital. While well, President Grover Cleveland thought it might improve his chances of getting reelected in 1894, if he appeased workers with a National Labor Day, he intentionally did not choose uh, May the 1st, as it was the anniversary of the bloody Chicago Haymarket uh, riot and the International Workers' Day. Instead, Grover Cleveland, then president, chose the first Monday of September. Strike organizer Eugene Debs went to prison, and Grover Cleveland lost the election. Socialist progressives uh, at the time demanded. Uh, the redistribution of wealth that led to the passage of the corporate income tax in 1894, the personal income tax 1914 and the inheritance estate tax of 1916. Eugene Debs and the rioters were defended by the attorney Clarence Darrow. Darrow later defended evolution in the Scopes Monkey Trial, if you recall hearing about that. Well, after six months in prison, Eugene Debs was released and founded the Social Democracy of America in 1897, the Social Democratic Party of America in 1898, and the Socialist Party of America in 1901. Debs ran five times for U.S. President on Socialist Party of America ticket. As he won zero electoral votes, he opposed um, the electoral process. When World War I started, Eugene Debs urged residents to the draft. One of those who followed Deb's call uh, to be a draft dodger was uh, Roger uh, Baldwin, who later founded the ACLU to help defend those who were accused of being a communist agitator. Roger Baldwin wrote at the time, I am for socialism. I seek social ownership of property, the abolition of the uh, uh, property class and sole control of those who produce wealth. Communism is the goal. This is the founder of the ACLU. In 1918 Debs was charged with 10 counts of sedition and sentenced to 10 years in prison. In protest of his sentence unionists, anarchists, socialists and communists marched in support of Debs in a May Day parade in Cleveland, Ohio. The peaceful parade it broke out into antifa style violence. The May Day riots of 1919. Well, when Debs' attorney asked for a presidential pardon, Woodrow Wilson wrote denied across the paperwork and stated While the flower of American youth was pouring out its blood in, uh, to vindicate the, case, the cause of civilization, this man, Debs, stood behind the lines sniping, attacking, and denouncing them. This man was a traitor to his country and he will never be pardoned during my administration. Close quote. Well, the next president, Warren G. Harding, also did not pardon Debs, and the White House released their statement. There is no question of his guilt. He is a dangerous man calculated to mislead the unthinking and affording excuse for those with criminal intent. Well, in 1979, Bernie Sanders produced a documentary praising Eugene Debs. He hung a portrait of Debs in the City Hall in Burlington, Vermont, and dedicated a plaque to him in his congressional office. Well after Vladimir Lenin organized the Bolshevik Revolution overthrowing Russia's government he formed a Communist International in 1919 this persuaded, persuaded rather some members of Eugene Debs Socialist Party of America to break off and form a Communist Party USA The Communist Party USA ran candidates for US president every year from 1920 till they dedicated Um, their support to Democrat President Franklin D. Roosevelt during World War II, as Roosevelt had allied himself with the USSR's Joseph Stalin. Chicago's um Statue dedicated to the police officers who were killed in the 1886 Haymarket riot was blown up on October 6th, 1969 by Bill Ayers and Eric Mann's militant group Weatherman Underground during their days of rage. Well, the Haymarket statue was rebuilt, only to be blown up again by the Weatherman Underground on the 6th of October in 1970, just a year later. Weatherman uh, member Bill Ayers uh, later helped launch the political career of a young Illinois state senator. Barack Obama. Bill Ayers stated, I am a radical leftist small c communist. Maybe I'm the last communist who is willing to admit it. The ethics of communism still appeal to me. I don't think uh, Lenin, uh, I don't like Lenin as much as the uh, earlier Marx, he went on to say. Well, Weatherman member Eric Mann helped train Patrice Cullors, one of the uh, founders of Black Lives Matter. Cullors stated in 2018, and that spelled C-U-L-L-O-R-S, Myself and Alicia, in particular, are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. Uh, We are the term, uh, uh, rather, we are super versed on um, sort of ideological theories. In America, laborers worked hard for wages with which they could buy trucks and houses, cars, boats, guns, and other personal possessions. They could also be moved upon to give of their possessions to those in need, which is called charity. In socialism, countries' laborers' were forced to work hard but could own no possessions the government took them all away people with no possessions have nothing with which to be charitable socialists believe that when the government finally finishes taking away everyone's possessions then the world will arrive at an imagined ideal utopia called communism the term comes from the latin word um communis and i'm probably not pronouncing it correctly in Latin, meaning everything held in common. There will be no private ownership of anything. There will be no privacy. People will not ever have um, control over their own children. Uh, The government will control everything on both production side and consumption side. In 1971, John Lennon and his second wife, Yoko Ono, co-wrote the song Imagine with socialist-themed lyrics, Imagine No Possessions and No Religion Too. Well, the term socialism was coined by French political philosopher Henry de Saint Simon in 17 or rather in 1825 as the opposite of the individual use of the term socialism was popularized by mid to late 1800s by European theorists such as Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Leon Trotsky and Antonio Gramsci, where power is taken away from individuals and concentrated into the hands of the state. Now, the presumption is the state will be fair, even handed, and everyone will have what's needed and what everyone else has. Well, Gramsci, who founded the Italian Communist Party, wrote in his prison notebook in 1929 to 35, any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values can be overthrown until those roots are cut, or can't be overthrown until those roots are cut. That's significant. I'm going to read it again, that first line. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values can't be overthrown until those roots are cut. Socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. End quote. Well, during Russian Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, socialism became identified as a distinct transition phrase between capitalism and communism, a transition phase, the or phrase rather. The most opportune time to transition is in crisis. Marx and Friedrich Engels, they explained Marx and Engels collected works, volume 10 page 318 conspirators by no means uh, confine themselves to organizing the revolutionary proletariat or the working class their business consists in spurring it into artificial crisis for them the only condition required for revolution is a sufficient organization of their own conspiracy they are the alchemists of the revolution well the term capitalism is uh Uh, where individuals with their own money or capital could invest and have a business providing goods and services, the production side. Individuals could then earn a profit, which they um, could decide how to spend the consumption side. Karl Marx wrote in the critique of the uh, Gotha program, uh, Part 4, between capitalist and communist societies, there lies a period of the revolutionary transformation. Lenin considered socialism as the transition phase from capitalism to communism, stating the goal of socialism is communism. Karl Marx explained the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Uh, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand wrote, there is no difference between communism and socialism except in the means of achieving the same ultimate end. Communism proposes to enslave men by force, socialism by vote. It is merely the difference between murder and suicide. Unions did help to bring it about. The eight hour work week, the 40 hour work week, minimum wages, safer working conditions, and more benefits for workers. Henry Ford's Motor Company was one of the first to implement these benefits. A story circulated by Henry Ford. Uh, met a Yemeni sailor at port and told him about auto factory jobs that paid $5 a day. The sailors spread the word, leading to chain migration from Yemen and other parts of the Middle East. Whether Ford actually did this, perhaps to counter growing union strength, ...is um, unverified, but it is a fact that large numbers of Middle Eastern Muslims began immigrating to Dearborn, Michigan, and worked in the auto industry. Unions were anti-immigrant as cheaper labor of uh, immigration undercut their wages. As unions grew in size, another situation developed where top leadership tended to hold values different than rank-and-file union workers... Many members supported the Second Amendment traditional marriage, biological definitions of sex, and protection of the unborn, yet some in union leadership funneled union dues to support candidates who advocated opposing those views. One of the unanticipated consequences of workers' benefits improving was the increased cost in doing business. Companies, in order to stay competitive in the increasingly global marketplace, had to find ways to lower their costs, which meant replacing jobs with automation and outsourcing. Well, there's more to that story, but there's no more time to tell it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Amy Wolf, author of Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, mom and motivational speaker Amy Wolf wants you to know That you're never too broken to help others. In her latest book, Signs of Hope, she tells the story of how she found an accidental movement, one that guided her through her own grief and touched thousands of others throughout the world. With so much suffering in our communities and in the world, it can feel impossible to make an impact. What good could you or I possibly do? Well, Amy, she's a busy mom. She's a small business owner. She felt the same way, but she didn't feel qualified to connect and uplift others. One day, after hearing about several suicides and suicide attempts in her community, she printed some signs, about 20 of them, with hopeful messages and anonymously placed them throughout her city. While well, this small action sparked a global movement of encouragement, hope and love. It spread to 50 states, 27 countries in just 18 months. Well, she's written a book on the subject. It's an, an intimate collection of stories from her personal life, as well as people impacted by the movement she began, well, inadvertently, about the power of hope and love in the midst of suffering. Well, Amy is a TEDx speaker coach as well as a speaker coach for consulting company she co-owns with her father. She enjoys having vacuum lines in her carpet, nurturing a ridiculous amount of houseplants, traveling with her daughters and husband and leading teams to Rwanda. She and her family live here in Portland. Her movement began in Newburgh. She joins us today to talk about the book that tells it all, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. Amy Wolf, welcome back. Hello, Georgine. Well, it's been a while since we have spoken, but a lot has happened since then. Congratulations. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. A lot has happened. Well, let's begin at the beginning. I don't want to assume all of our listeners are familiar with your story. Uh, You lived in Newburgh, and there were a series of events that sparked what, for you, began, uh, became, rather, a movement. Can you tell us a little bit of the start of your story?
3: Yeah, well, it started of hearing an alarming statistic, uh, uh, some news of local teens who uh, tried to take their life or did. And I didn't know what to do. I, Like many of us were reading headlines and going, gosh, what, what on earth could I possibly do? But I'm pretty stubborn and I'm a doer. And so I thought I have to do something. Even if it's lame, I have to try. So my family and I, my two young daughters and husband, stuck 20 yard signs around our small community of Newburgh with messages that said, don't give up. You are worthy of love. Your mistakes do not define you. We stuck them out thinking, to be honest, Georgine, I put them in my car to go stake them around the schools. And I thought this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. This is so lame. It is so cliche. It'll help nobody. Who am I to think that I could do anything, but I drove home. thought it's anonymous. If it flops, no one knows. (laughs) And it was the beginning of a beautiful, wild, unpredictable movement of people saying, I want to put hope in my yard. Or I took hope off that sign for myself, fighting an addiction, going through divorce, uh, fighting diagnosis. And then, as you can imagine, since 2020, (laughs) we've gotten busier as people have been trying to grasp a way to spread some positivity in their community,
2: yeah, I think what you've just described uh, helps us to uh, to understand that you don't have to have a lot of money, a lot of time uh, no. in order to make a big impact. and while what you began as just communicating the value of others in your community, uh, really touch hearts in ways that you could not have anticipated. We need to take that in because we tend to do nothing in, rather than do something that, well, we can't imagine could make a difference.
3: Yeah, I think our biggest challenge, to be honest, now, if I were to speculate in August of 2021, is, man, we're tired. We're yeah. weary. Some of us are still looking for jobs and we are still lamenting the grief of losing a loved one. And I mean, things are heavy and it's headline after headline. And with the, you know, with Afghanistan and and Greece and flooding and I mean, there's just fires and it's earthquakes. It's so overwhelming to read the headlines and have compassion fatigue. So, I hope that this is a timely word this week uh, because you and I have gone back and forth a little bit trying to schedule this. I hope this is divine timing. Yes. This week, you can do something. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but you can do it and it's going to matter.
2: How do you address the compassion fatigue? Uh, you put it so beautifully. We're overwhelmed with what's going on in the world around us, and perhaps we're feeling drained, and yet, We want to reach out and minister to others in hopes that we can make some kind of difference. What do you say to the compassion fatigued uh, who find it difficult to find the inspiration to reach out to others?
3: Yeah, I don't think I have a clear answer except to say, you know, I think it it starts in our, our sense of agency that we have the ability to change things. And then a sobering start of, and it doesn't matter if it's big. I mean, our movement became big Mm -hmm. (laughs) unexpectedly, but sometimes it's one soul. Sometimes it's one day. Sometimes it's changing the outlook in one season for someone. And that should be enough for us. And so I think it's our, our belief in ourselves that we actually have capacity, the agency to be positive influence. And then just be open-fisted, open-handed about what those outcomes are, that we just sow the seeds of kindness. I think with compassion fatigue, also, we kind of got to choose a thing and go with it. We can't be all things to all people. So, where, you know, what headline caused your heart to stir uh, the most? And then just do something about it. Hit a website, hit click donate, write a hand note to the organization, a handwritten note of gratitude for their work. Today, I dropped off snacks at our local hospital to help the nurses. It's the little thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that you sort of touched on is that we can show up and should show up even imperfectly to help others. Sometimes what makes mm-hmm. us reluctant is I I know what I want to do. I know what I want to convey, but I'm not sure I can do it well enough You printed some signs and put them in your community and it changed things in a dramatic way. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I think if we wait until we have our lives together, we're going to be waiting forever. Uh, I am no one noble. I am not any different than all of us who are seeing the same headlines and we're busy and we're preoccupied and we're fatigued and we're weary. So if we all wait for someone with more money, more resources, more connections who have their lives together then, man, there's going to be a lot of good left on the table and, and we're going to miss. We're going to miss it. We're going to miss our mission. Yeah. So we, I think it starts with we just got to notice each other. When you hear of a need, what's within your capacity to meet it? And you know what? Maybe one day, depression, you can't get out of bed. It, it, your anxiety is heightened. Okay. And then maybe in a few days, you hear of a neighbor who's going through a hard time and you just write him a card. You know, so I I think part of the strategy is we, we take care of ourselves and then we do what we can to take care of others, but we don't wait until we feel perfect or qualified.
2: Yeah, nothing would ever be done if that were the no. requirement. Yeah, well, let's talk about the book, um, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. You design it in such a way that you you explain the global movement that you birthed by a very simple series of acts. But you also offer some many chapters that uh, that reflect the messages that have resonated around the world. Tell us a little bit about how the book is structured for listeners who want to learn from your example and how others have followed that example and made a difference in their world.
3: Yeah, so the the book does tell more stories about the movement. In fact, my inner circle read the book and said, I didn't even know some of these details of how it all came together. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be really interesting to read, I think, for those who are in the nonprofit space or wanting to start movements of their own, kind of to hear the inner workings of how things happen for us. But then there are these mini chapters you mentioned. There was <laughs> behind the scenes writing a book, there came a moment where I don't know if I have any more words and I, I I need more words in this book. I have a word count. I'm in high school all over again, hitting the word count tool in Microsoft word to see if I'm closer and closer. And my mom said, well, why don't you have many chapters that talk about each of the messages on your products and your yard signs and stories around people resonating with that one in particular, or why you guys chose that message. Matt burst these many chapters throughout the book to unpack what is you are not alone. Where did that come from? Well, that came from a grieving widow that I met a couple months after the movement started. And it's not too late. Where did that come from? Well, actually, it was an account, an encounter my mother had with a stranger years ago. Uh, and so there's there's these stories of why why did we choose these words, and then what was the impact of them? Stories of people encountering these words at the right place at the right time. But I think there's nuggets in here for everyone. There's yes. a chapter about why is it so hard to claim hope for ourselves? You know, there might be a lot of do-gooders that read this book and they're encouraged, but I hope there's a chapter, chapter six, where they're going, why can't I take it inward? Why do I have a hard time helping myself, asking for help, knowing what I need? And chapter seven's about how do we love people who are different from us? Good Lord. Chapter seven is so timely. It is a timely word for our country and our culture. Yes is how do we mean you matter for everyone? What does that even look like? So I do hope there's some nuggets no matter where you're at in your journey.
2: Yeah, well, I can tell you there are nuggets no matter where your readers are <laughs> at in this, uh, in this journey. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Amy Wolf, her new book, Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. She's seen it happen. The book tells us how, and uh, who knows? We might be able to do the same. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Amy Wolf. She is the author of Signs of Hope, quite literally, how small acts of love can change your world. You mentioned chapter seven in the book. It's titled Meaning It, um, in which you write about empathy and how we connect with people who may be very different from ourselves and what. Um, what it might mean, uh, how some of these signs might mean in the hearts and minds of individuals whose journeys are are uh, quite disparate. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that chapter and the importance of proximity?
3: Yeah, uh, I, I told my editor, if I could write a whole book, it'd be chapter seven. Mm-hmm. On, I could write a whole book on this topic because it's been really hard for me. I realized I put you matter on a sign in my yard uh, and I didn't mean it. I thought I did. I mean, I'm a kind person. Um, my you know, elementary school teachers, I'm still in contact with, is, oh, we knew her, you were such a kind, compassionate girl when you were young, and it's so cool to see what you're doing. And I am embarrassed to admit, no, I put it in my yard, and I didn't mean it, not because I was unkind, but because I meant it for only people like me. I didn't hate anyone, but I didn't understand, and I didn't listen, and I didn't empathize. And so the chapter seven is an honest, at points confession of how I didn't mean it for my LGBTQ friends. I didn't mean it for people of color where I just, I was more confused and I, and I wasn't listening very well. And so it's an honest take at how I struggle to mean you matter to everyone. And what does that look like? And what you said, it looks like empathy, man. Even if we don't agree, even if I don't endorse specific ideas, I can have empathy that if I was in your shoes with your experiences in that value system, man, I do the same thing probably as you, you know, I would feel the same way you would, even if I disagree with it. So empathy is not endorsement. And I think that is huge. (laughs) That's huge. (laughs) That's number one. And then you talk about proximity, getting in proximity, uh, I had a friend even this week, Georgine, where we disagreed on something fundamental. had to do with vaccines and COVID, so super sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I, I we started to exchange messages. And you know what happened is we got close together again. We started the conversation. We got in proximity and suddenly less anger, more understanding, more empathy, more grace and thought. I'm still seeing it outwork in my life, even this week. Proximity matters, getting close to people that maybe we uh, have disagreements about, about things big or small, getting in proximity and having empathy.
1: But, you know, that's
2: not the way it's done today. We have a disagreement. It divides us and we just avoid each other for the remainder of our short lives. And nothing is ever resolved. We don't move forward. That tends to be the way things are are done today. How did you um, work toward Reconciliation, that may not be the right word, but um, sure. bringing the two of you together again in the midst of a disagreement. You mentioned the the vaccine and COVID-19. That's yeah. one major issue yeah. that has divided us. How did you manage in this situation um, to to come closer together rather than apart, which is what we tend to do today?
3: Oh, yeah, I can practically walk you through my steps. One, I wanted to hit reply and I was mad and I chose not to. So one, hmm. cool off cool off, don't hate reply, don't respond back until you're in a good mental and emotional space. So I waited two days. <laughs> and then my anger subsided. And then second strategy is lead with a question, a sincere question. So I asked her a sincere question. Instead of rebuttals, instead of, yeah, but what about this? And instead of, but read this article, I asked her a question. And her decision To answer me, not defensively, but to see the sincerity in my question and answer patiently, thoroughly, without sounding defensive or angry at me. That was her choice. And so she engaged in a positive way with a positive mindset. And she thoroughly explained her ideas and opinions. So one, I think we need to wait and hit reply and cool off. Two, I think we should lead with questions to understand instead of answers we want to preach. (laughs) And then three, to try to defeat defensiveness, try to back off the I'm right, you're wrong, try to get out of that space and seek to understand and learn from one another. And in the end, her and I don't agree on everything. But, man, we, don't, we aren't filled with, filled with anger, we're not frustrated, and we have a relationship intact.
2: Mm, what a beautiful outcome to what could have been an explosive situation.
3: Yeah. Anger will do that. Miscommunication will do that. Making assumptions of each other and probably assuming the worst. Assuming worst intent in each other is is totally destructive. Man, what would happen, Georgina, if we assume best intent from each other?
2: Mm -hmm.
3: The things would change.
2: Yeah. 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 One other chapter that I've I they're all great chapters, but that I wanted to (laughs) talk to you about today was the one how to claim hope for ourselves. Uh, Because, as we mentioned earlier in our conversation, that can be a real challenge. I learned, for example, this weekend that a pastor whose church my husband and I had visited um, many years passed away from COVID-19. I didn't know. And just how -hmm. do we claim hope for ourselves when we're uh, when we're sorrowful, when perhaps we don't feel motivated to do anything to reach out to others when we ourselves are are grieving?
3: Yeah, well, I think my, my first thought, which I'm no expert, I've just gone through hard mm-hmm. stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. just from my personal experience, is, you know, to feel the feelings. We have a lot of different ways that we can numb ourselves these days, a lot, a lot of ways we can numb our emotions. So, number one, we got to feel our feelings, and then it might be a messy ball of yarn But we're feeling them. We're trying to name what we're feeling. Why are we feeling that? Maybe getting curious. Man, I had a strong reaction to reading that headline. I had a strong reaction to my roommate or to my spouse. What's going on? Why am I so angry? Rumble with it. Get curious. And trace it back to what fundamentally, what was it? You know, my mom is a wise lady. You'll hear about her in the book. But she said anger is always a secondary emotion. So for me, anger is kind of a quick flash in the pan. But then I got to get curious. Once we identify where does this hurt come from? Where are my emotions coming from? What are they? Then I think maybe we'll get more clear on what we need. Man, I need... Um, more boundaries in my family. I need a friend that I, it is on speed dial and I know that they're available for me. I need to get off this group text that never ends. <laughs> like, I need, you know, what, being able to ask for what we need, setting maybe it's, you know, it could be a million things, but Those are the first things that come to mind.
2: Yeah, yeah. Another um, thing you write about is resilience when love spreading efforts backfire. And I think that's maybe a fear that some of us have, that what we are attempting to do may backfire. Talk a little bit about that resilience and the fact that sometimes our efforts can backfire.
3: Oh, yeah. You would think that putting don't give up on a yard sign would seem really hard to bash. And that's not the case. Uh, people can find negativity wherever they want to find it. And we have certainly gotten a handful, perhaps more than a handful, over the last four years of this is lame, this is coddling, you know, these messages. Your mistakes do define you. You're an idiot if you don't. I mean, just a lot of negativity. And it was shocking to me. And I wonder how many of us have tried to do a good deed, tried mm-hmm. to show up for someone, tried to serve somewhere well, and man, it did not go the way we planned. So there is this chapter uh, kind of wrestling with the idea of, man, yeah, maybe we should evaluate our intentions. Was I helping this person so I could feel good? Maybe I should do my own personal work on that. Or, or maybe I thought I was being helpful, but really that's not what the person needed I assumed what they needed. I did not ask. So maybe we need to ask more questions to offer better solutions for people. You know, what do we do with the naysayers who will poke holes in anything good? Uh, I... I shared some stories specifically around the movement and some other people's experiences as well. How do we navigate the challenges?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we're just at about out of time, um, but before we uh, end, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about the importance of hope. And if we can mm-hmm. convey that to someone who is on the edge of despair, um, we will have mm-hmm. accomplished something of, of great value.
3: Yeah. I think hope is having this positive, positive outcomes for ourselves wanting Good things, good jobs, good relationships, good opportunities, and life's going to throw curveballs. And I know for some of us, we feel like we're the only ones. And I just, I want to tell you, you're not alone. It's not just you. And I, it doesn't remove your problem, but there is solidarity that you are not alone. And then I think when those curveballs come, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated. Uh, but there are resources, there are friendships, there are hotlines, there are all sorts of things that are available to us to say we're feeling weak and we need a little help. And th- we all are in this boat. There yeah. is no shame in asking for help. We are all in this boat. I've had sh- done my fair share in the counseling office. Um, and so I would say if, you, if you've lost that that flicker of hope, uh, it's okay there's resources for you. You're not alone. Uh, and and ultimately, ultimately, whether you believe it or not, this is what I would say. Whether you believe it or not, you can overcome. You might not feel like today. You can find someone to hold the hope for you until you are strong enough to hold it for yourself. But in you is the ability to overcome obstacles. There is agency in you, whether you feel it or not, um, and rally people around to help until you can.
2: Oh, that's so good. Well, Amy, congratulations on your success of giving Mm -hmm. people hope when they needed it desperately. Once again, the book is titled Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. It's definitely worth reading, and now's a great time to do that, because we need to uh, spread hope and to receive it for ourselves as well. Thank you so much for taking the time, Amy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice show. Glad to have you with us. We're going to wind our way through some of the stories of the last several days since this was a long holiday weekend. Also want to let you know tomorrow on the program I'm going to have the opportunity to talk with Mary Graybar, her latest book Debunking the 1619 Project. Exposing the Plan to Divide America. That's coming up tomorrow. And then on Thursday, Joel Rosenberg. Yeah, he has a new book out. Enemies and Allies, an Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. That's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, the day before the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001, we're going to uh, share a special highlighting some of those events. Well, a shooting in one of Portland's most prominent neighborhoods on Saturday had people running for cover. The shooting happened at the Pearl District in Northwest 10th and Davis. Three people were shot, according to police. A verbal argument apparently led to a physical fight between a group of people inside a restaurant. Officers said the people all knew each other. Well, it's yet another incident in Portland that's leaving residents frustrated, uh, said David Embry, who was, lived in Portland for 15 years. He's a newcomer. It's sort of uh, sad right now to be a resident in Portland because we've all seen it to be so great. For him, um, who's lived in the city for two years, the shooting was no surprise. I work in the area and this seems to be pretty common nowadays. Well, both he and um, others are frustrated with leadership in the city. He plans to move from Portland uh, in the Pearl District to Bend, where he hopes things will be better. The city of Portland, I think, if there was, say, a vote, most people are disappointed with what's happening, what's going on now. Well, uh, Portlanders are frustrated with the leadership as the city deals with weekend violence and events that have taken place over the last two years most recently. Well, COVID-19 killed 113 fully vaccinated Oregon residents. 13,166 new cases were also reported for the state. Well, despite being completely vaccinated against the COVID-19 um, Uh, Virus. More than 100 people in Oregon have died from the virus, according to state data. Well, since January, at least 113 who were completely vaccinated have died of COVID. At least 63 of those deaths affected adults above the age of 80. There were 29 cases involving people age 70 to 79, 15 involving people 60 to 69, three cases involving. Uh, people 50 to 59 and three involving residents aged 40 to 49. Well, according to the state records, no breakthrough fatalities in people under the age of 40 have been recorded in Oregon. Well, the number of breakthrough cases in the state has also increased to 13,166, with the bulk of cases affecting adults between the ages of 30 to 59. In the week ending the 28th of August, at least 2,500 Um, Nearly 3,000 of the state's total number of COVID-19 cases among the fully vaccinated population were reported. Well, the state has reported 650 breakthrough hospitalizations since January, with 219 of those over the age of 80. Well, the White House warned on Friday that the United States is not adequately prepared to handle future pandemics and other high consequence biological threats. And they rolled out a strategy that would fundamentally transform the nation's ability to prevent, detect and rapidly respond to pandemics and threats. Now, it might seem like a little bit too much to consider the possibility Or the likelihood of future pandemics while we're still in the middle of this one. But in a report released on Friday by the White House Office of Science and Technology and the National Security Council, officials warn that the U.S. currently is not adequately prepared to handle future pandemics, warning that serious biological threats are expected to occur at an increasing frequency. Well, President Biden's top science advisor and White House Office of Science and Technology Policy Director, Dr. Eric Lander, he warned on Friday that another pandemic could occur soon, possibly within the next decade, and would likely be substantially different than COVID-19. We must be prepared to deal with any kind of viral threats, he said. Well, the effort to transform U.S. response capabilities is expected to cost about $65.3 billion, a dollar figure officials said shouldn't be viewed as a cost, but instead as providing a large return on investment. Investing a modest amount annually to avert or mitigate the huge toll of future pandemics and other biological threats is an economic and moral imperative, the report states. It's hard to imagine a higher economic or human uh, return on national investment. Well, the investments uh, would include those in critical science goals, uh, areas like vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics and early warning as well as other investments in strengthening disease surveillance, health systems, surge capacity, personal protective equipment, innovation, biosafety and biosecurity, regulatory capacity and global pandemic preparedness. Biological threats are increasing. They went on to report whether naturally occurring accidental or deliberate and the likelihood of a catastrophic biological event is event rather is similarly increasing the report states. So you can add that to your prayer list, if you will. Well, the State Department uh, State Department is trying to steal credit for the rescue of four Americans from Afghanistan. According to the organizer, it is a total lie. Well, the organizer of a private mission to rescue an American mom, Miriam, and her three children from Afghanistan, says the U.S. State Department is now trying to insert itself into the story of her evacuation, despite playing little or no role for much of the rescue effort. Senior State Department officials on Monday announced that the U.S. has facilitated the safe departure of four U.S. citizens By overland route from Afghanistan, embassy staff was present upon their arrival, end quote. But those actually involved in the dangerous rescue operation say the State Department deserves little to no credit for Merriam's escape from Afghanistan. Corey Mills and a private team of military veterans drawing on funding by private donors, including the Sentinel Foundation, Led the effort to rescue Miriam and her three children from the country where they had been left behind by the Biden administration. Multiple sources with knowledge of Miriam's evacuation confirmed. Well, the State Department's public posture about Miriam's rescue is absolute nonsense, Mills said in an interview, an exclusive interview on Monday. The fact that they're spinning this, trying to take 100 percent credit when they didn't track this family, when they placated this family, when the mother, who was under extreme stress and extreme pressure, reached out to the State Department multiple times and got no help. "End quote." While well, the State Department spokesperson, when asked whether the agency is overselling its role in the rescue, Um, The department, uh, an email responded, the department assisted four Americans depart Afghanistan via an overland route on Monday. We provided guidance to them, worked to facilitate their safe passage, and embassy officials greeted the Americans once they crossed the border. But Mills and others with knowledge of the operation say the State Department is exaggerating its role and had little to do with the rescue mission until the most dangerous part, getting Miriam and her children across the border, was completed. In other developments, Anthony Blinken will testify before a Senate panel next week about the Afghanistan withdrawal. And the State Department and White House are holding up uh, charter planes in Afghanistan, according to a top New Yorker editor. Representative Gallagher is slamming the president for lying about the crisis in Afghanistan. And the New York Times is being mocked for a piece on the Biden doctrine following the Afghanistan exit. Critics are asking, is this a White House press release? Well, the son of a 9-11 victim to President Biden do not come to Ground Zero memorials, despite the fact that last week he um, looked he said that there would be an exploration into releasing more information, which the 9-11 families had asked for. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we'll talk about Governor Newsom. His supporters have uh, outraised the California recall backers ahead of the election. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the
1: Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Newsom's supporters have outraised the California recall backers ahead of the election. Millions have been raised on both sides ahead of the final stretch of the California recall election that could see first term Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom removed from office in a state that's heavily blue. Well, with just a little over a week until the September 4th contest, the state has received more than 5 million ballots out of the 22 million sent to registered voters. The vote will give Republicans a chance to take back Sacramento since Arnold Schwarzenegger left office in 2011. Fundraising by pro and anti-recall groups, as well as the top candidates in the race, has topped $72 million, according to the records ballot committees uh, with a pro newsom stance have raised upwards of 49. Point, uh, 49.5 million while those in favor raised 8.6 a significant um, disparity uh, as of the 31st of July. That's according to the California Secretary of State's office. The biggest anti-recall committee stopped the Republican recall of Governor Newsom, raised the majority of that uh, fund, $46.3 million on the Democrat side. Well, much of the opposition against Newsom stems from his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic in which he's issued mandates requiring masks and public workers to be vaccinated. Those issues coincide with raging wildfires in Northern California, and expanding homelessness crisis, a spike in crime and California's notoriously high taxes and the cost of living that have prompted some residents and businesses to relocate elsewhere. Just a few days and we'll know the outcome In other developments. A Newsom rally speaker called once again, Larry Elder, Newsom's primary rival, a black face of white supremacy. Somehow nobody's offended. Newsom spotlights uh, former President Trump in the California gubernatorial recall election, although his name isn't on the ballot. An elder urges supporters to report anything suspicious in the California recall election. Well, South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdoch uh, raised uh, from his uh, uh, rather resigned from his law firm to enter rehab after his wife and son were shot dead. Actually, uh, we learned later today he was fired from his law firm for stealing uh, the prominent South Carolina lawyer who was shot along a county road over the weekend months after he found his wife and son shot and killed outside their home is quitting his law firm uh, and will enter rehab. That was the first version well alex Murdoff, fifty three was heading to Charleston when he said he was shot uh, on uh, a road in uh, road rather in Varnville, South Carolina on Saturday. Uh, His car was stopped when a truck passed by before turning around and someone from the inside opened fire, his lawyer said, citing information from Murdaugh's brother. The sustained uh, and superficial wound to the head, authorities said. Uh, In the statement, Murdaugh announced he was leaving his law firm and entering rehab following a long battle that's been exacerbated by the murders of his family members. He says that uh, that has caused an incredibly difficult time in my life. I have made a lot of decisions that I truly regret. I'm resigning from my law firm and entering rehab after a long battle that has been exacerbated. Uh, It was uh, unclear if Saturday's shooting was related to the double slaying of his wife and son. A family spokesman said uh, he is expected to survive. They were superficial wounds. The shooting came months after he found his wife and son, uh, wife 52, son 22, uh, shot several times in their California uh, home or north carolina home in june they were both uh, dead outside the home near the dog kennels according to authorities lots of questions being asked in the wake of these events in other developments seattle could lose over 200 police officers due to the covid vaccine mandate according to a recent report and the accomplice of a minneapolis teenager is serving 90 years for triple murder reverses his critical, his crucial testimony. And after the Chicago Labor Day weekend shooting uh, uh, ended up wounding eight children, the top cop is pleading with the public. A Florida judge has denied bond to a Marine sharpshooter accused of killing four, including a baby, in his mother's arms. A mainstream media host gets uh, fooled by a fake COVID story. That ran it, thinking it was uh, true. CNN is being blasted for an article claiming uh, whiteness um, will be expanded to tan. So I don't know if that just means in the summer when Caucasians tan or if they're um, broadening what whiteness means. President Biden seeks to shift the focus to domestic issues after the botched Afghanistan exit. Doesn't want to talk about it. That's in the State Department's bailiwick now. The Justice Department is looking for ways to challenge the Texas abortion law. And the right to work economies are recovering faster from covid than those that aren't a big Boeing customer says they're going to be walking away from a new max order simply can't afford it and forget Netflix. Some movie fans are rewinding to VHS tapes. You still have yours? Well, Lyft and Uber announced on Friday that they're going to pay the legal fees for any of their drivers who are sued under Texas new law that prohibits abortion after a heartbeat can be detected. The law allows private citizens to enforce the measure though. Patients may not be sued. Any, Individual can be uh, can sue the people knowingly assisting the procedure, including doctors, those paying for the abortion and clinic uh, workers. So they would be subject. Lyft and um, uh, Uber would be subject to that penalty. Drivers are never responsible for monitoring where their riders go and why. Imagine being a driver and not knowing if you are breaking the law by giving someone a ride. Lyft said in a statement announcing the policy. Similarly, riders never have to justify or even share where they're going and why. Imagine being a pregnant woman trying to get to a health care appointment and not knowing if your driver will cancel on you for fear of breaking the law. Both are completely unacceptable. Again, Lyft said. However, it is unlikely that the law would apply to rideshare drivers as they would be unlikely uh, to knowingly transport an individual who was having an abortion after a heartbeat had been detected. So a bit unnecessary, maybe a bit of virtue signaling. Well, Texas Governor Abbott uh, signed the SB1 voting law on Tuesday after state Democrats blocked previous attempts to approve the legislation. One thing that all Texans can agree on, and that is that we must have uh, trust and confidence in our elections. The bill that I'm about to sign, the governor said, helps to achieve that goal. Uh, Before signing, Abbott spoke. He said the law does, however, make it harder for fraudulent votes to be cast. Well, State House Democrats walked out of a session in May to deny a quorum of the lawmakers and prevent the bill's passage. State Democrats uh, then fled Texas in July to block a quorum during the Republicans' second attempt to pass the bill. legislation was finally approved by the state legislature last week and, again, signed into law by the governor just this week. Franklin Graham is lamenting government's incentive not to work on Labor Day. And President Biden looked to change the subject from Afghanistan to COVID over the long weekend, as his polling numbers tank while Americans are trapped in the country ruled by terrorists. Hugh Hewitt says not satisfied with abandoning Americans in Afghanistan. Now Joe Biden wants us to forget they are there. The cover up will be worse than the blunder because we aren't going to forget the abandonment or the attempt to erase our collective concern for them. From the Wall Street Journal, the White House would prefer that all of us, uh, all of this go away so it can think happy things, as Mr. Biden put it not long ago when asked about Afghanistan. But he can't duck the reality that his failed Afghan withdrawal has put the U.S. in this precarious position. The State Department is attempting to take credit for the rescue of four Americans from Afghanistan, but those who were actually involved are not having it. Celebrities are vowing to boycott Texas over their pro-life legislation. The story runs through a litany of actresses, um some... apoplectic over the law, depending uh, defending the lives of the unborn. Meanwhile, from another story, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the Justice Department would protect those seeking to obtain or provide reproductive health services under a federal law known as the Federal Access to Clinic Entrances Act. Arlen said in a statement that federal prosecutors are still urgently exploring options to challenge the Texas law. He said the Justice Department would enforce the federal law in order to protect the constitutional rights of women and other persons, including access to an abortion. Of course, the third party involved is not uh, mentioned. Celebrities, Spiden and, of course, the Satanic Temple is upset with the heartbeat bill. Well, ABC News worries that jobless Americans have few options as their benefits expire this month or maybe even this week. The story explains two critical programs expired on Monday. One provided jobless aid to self-employed and gig workers and another provided benefits to those who have been unemployed more than six months. Further, the Biden administration's $300 weekly supplemental unemployment benefits also ran out on Monday. Strangely, lost in this headline is the most simple and dignified option, getting a job. They're Are a record number of them out there? Well, turns out one problem is many young workers are simply quitting their jobs with no plan B. Well, even with Hurricane Ida, hurricane strikes are not on the rise. From the story, Despite what you may have heard, Atlantic hurricanes are not becoming more frequent. In fact, the frequency of hurricanes making landfall in the continental U.S. has declined slightly since 1900. Airplanes and satellites have dramatically increased the number of storms that scientists can spot at sea today, making the frequency of landfall hurricanes, which were reliably documented even in 1900, a better statistic than the total number of Atlantic hurricanes. And there aren't more powerful hurricanes either. The frequency of Category 3 and above hurricanes making landfall since 1900 is also trending slightly down. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice
1: show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. That'll be in the first hour of tomorrow's program. And we'll talk with uh, Joel Rosenberg on Thursday. His latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. That's coming up on Thursday. We have a special on 9-11 coming up on Friday the eve of the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of those horrific events. Well, men are abandoning college. They now make up barely 40% of enrollment. Well, no reversal is in sight. Women increase their lead over men in college applications for the 2021-22 school year, 3,805,978 to two point eight million fifteen thousand. Uh, by nearly a percentage point compared to the previous academic year, according to Common Application, a nonprofit that transmits um some Applications to more than 900 schools. Women make up 49 percent of uh, the college age population in the U.S., according to the Census Bureau. From Christina Summers, the number of men enrolled at two to four year uh, colleges has fallen behind women by record levels in a widening education gap across the U.S. Yet many colleges still have a women's center and women's studies program that claims we live in a patriarchy. A new poll says many Biden voters regret their choice, a fifth of them, according to Zogby. A Virginia school district um, is paying out thirty two point seven million dollars in bonuses to teachers who refuse to return to work. From that story, Fairfax County public schools allocated federal coronavirus relief funds to reward teachers, bus drivers and other staff's school board members. Uh, Riccardi Anderson announced on Friday district teachers lobbied successfully to keep schools closed even after it was safe to reopen. Fairfax County didn't return to a full in-person schedule during the twenty twenty one school year. Portland City Council will soon vote on banning any business with the state of Texas. The mayor of Portland uh, claims they are doing so because the Texas law against abortion could force women to carry pregnancies against their will. The ban includes business travel To Texas. The State Department is blocking private rescue flights from leaving Afghanistan, according to organizers. I'm not sure how that would work. We have no presence on the ground in the country. Republicans are demanding answers over the screening or lack of screening of Afghans brought to the United States. And Afghan women are demanding rights as the Taliban seeks recognition. In fact, there was a parade. Over the last couple of days, a parade of women, they were wearing their hijabs, but they were carrying signs and demanding that they be treated well. It was a, an image of tremendous courage, knowing what the Taliban thinks of women and what they ought to be allowed to do and forbidden from doing. The European Union plans to reestablish a diplomatic presence in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Well, Mexico breaks up a sizable migrant caravan reportedly by force. And a project in El Salvador shows how China is exerting growing power in America's backyard. Well, half of small businesses have unfilled positions. Half. The global natural gas price surge is threatening to dent economic recovery. And until 2023, parts shortages will keep auto prices sky high. So if you can keep your car, at least for the next couple of years. Might be a good idea. A four-day workweek gains traction despite pushback. And El Salvador will become the first country to accept Bitcoin as currency. Well, experts call for rigorous audit of the uh, to protect the California recall. And here we thought all that election software stuff had already been fact-checked. Well, the U.S. Navy has identified the five sailors who died in a helicopter crash outside of San Diego last week. And soldiers detained um, the Guinea president and dissolved the government there. That story is developing. A Taliban spokesperson warned the U.S. not to interfere with their culture and treatment of women. Meanwhile, the same Taliban shot and killed a pregnant police officer in front of her family. The Taliban claimed control of the last hideout province, or really it should be holdout province, and um, uh, promised uh, that they would form a government, which they announced earlier today as well. President Biden's approval is tanking. Only two other presidents have had lower ratings at this point in their uh, term. The Department of Justice vows not to protect preborn babies in Texas. And only off by, well, nearly 100 percent, AP added an embarrassing correction to an article claiming 70 percent of calls to Mississippi uh, poison control were about ivermectin ingestion. Apparently, none of it was related. Well, the end of enhanced unemployment benefits brings hope to small businesses. Shortages of supplies and workers will delay Gulf Coast rebuilding. If you looked at the cost of lumber these days, Britain starts a coal plant after gas prices surged there. Well, the CEO of a video game developer supported the Texas pro-life law. Well, he's now been let go by the company. In the wake of the Andrew Cuomo scandal, the entire board has resigned from Time's Up. Whose top leaders aided and abetted the disgraced ex-governor. A Robert E. Lee statue on Richmond's Monument Avenue will be removed on Wednesday morning, and a Gavin Newsom rally speaker once again called Larry Elder a "blackface of white supremacy" in a bit of race baiting. Patriotic restaurants across America honored our troops killed in Kabul by reserving a table for them and setting out thirteen beers. Auburn University also honored. Uh, these uh, 13 U.S. service members slain in Kabul. You can read more about that in the Washington Examiner. Non-Copus Mentis, Fairfax teachers win $32.7 million bonuses for extraordinary at-home work during the pandemic. Hurricane Ida's death toll rises past 60 and Apple wisely de- delayed their iPhone, their photo scanning plan amid fierce backlash. Well, on this day in history, 1822, Brazil declares its independence from Portugal. 1901, the Boxer Rebellion in China officially ends with the signing of the Peking Protocol, Peace of Beijing. 1940, on this day in history, Nazi Germany begins its initial blitz on London during World War II. 1963, the National Professional Football Hall of Fame is dedicated in Canton, Ohio. 1972, the International Olympic Committee bans Vince Matthews and Wayne Collette of the U.S. from further competition for talking to each other on the victory stand in Munich during the playing of the Star Spangled Banner after winning the gold and silver medals in the 400-meter run. 1979, the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, ESPN, that's what... ESPN ESPN stands for the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, makes its debut on cable TV. 2008, troubled mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are placed in government conservatorship. And on this day in history, in 2017, Equifax announces a cybersecurity breach that exposed the personal information of 147 million people. Well, as I mentioned, the State Department has refused to grant official approval for private evacuation flights from Afghanistan to land in third countries, even though the department concealed that official authorization would likely be needed for planes to land in those nations, an email uh, that's now been uh, made public. Furthermore, the State Department explicitly stated that charter flights, even those containing American citizens, would not be allowed to land at Defense Department air bases. The Biden administration's delaying of private evacuation efforts have been a widespread source of frustration, infuriating uh, rescue organizations and even a prominent Democrat senator, Eric Montalvo, who organized a series of private flights evacuating those stranded in Afghanistan, shared that email and others. Uh, with Fox News after his evacuation efforts were repeatedly hampered by the federal bureaucracy. A September 1st email that the State Department official sent to uh, Montalvo uh, underscores the extent to which private evacuation efforts have run into bureaucratic roadblocks, despite the fact that the State Department and the president have said, we're going to make all efforts to get everyone who wants out, out. Well, the organizers of a private mission to rescue an American mom and her three children from Afghanistan say the State Department uh, Department is now trying to insert itself into the story of her evacuation despite playing little or no role uh, for much of the rescue effort. Meanwhile, four out of five Guantanamo detainees whom former President Barack Obama released in exchange for former U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl in 2014 now hold senior positions in the interim government created by the Taliban in Afghanistan. According to the Afghan television network Tall News or Tolo News, the Taliban formed government gave leadership positions to Mohammed Nabi Amari. And three others, um, or rather four others, all of whom were released in a 2014 deal between the Obama administration and the Taliban to free Bergdahl, whom the Taliban had held as a prisoner since 2009. Well, late last month, following the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, the Taliban announced that Omari, a former Guantanamo Bay naval base uh, detainee who has uh, close ties to al Qaeda, would govern coast province in Afghanistan. On Tuesday, the Taliban announced that uh, others would serve as acting minister for information and culture. Another would serve as acting minister of borders and tribal affairs. Another would serve as acting director of intelligence. And the, the last would serve as deputy defense minister. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Before I get started, I want to remind you, tomorrow we're going to talk with Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. That's coming up in the first hour of tomorrow's program. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent uh, Modern Middle East. Uh, He'll be joining us on Thursday. On Friday, we'll have a special 9-11 program in anticipation of that anniversary, the 20th anniversary on Saturday. So that's coming up later this week. Although the Chinese Christians are pretty much banned from honoring their own martyrs, they're now required to hold prayer meetings commemorating the 76th anniversary of the victory rather of the Chinese people's anti-Japanese war uh, to demonstrate the good image of peace-loving Christianity in China. Well, according to religious liberty magazine Bitter Winter, the Chinese Communist Party, they recently sent a directive to all churches that are part of the government-controlled Protestant three-self church. That's not the underground church. This is the above ground church. Well, in part, the directive orders churches to organize peace prayer worship um, activities to commemorate this anniversary, the 76th of the victory of the Chinese people's um, war of resistance against Japanese aggression and the world anti-fascist war around September 3rd, according to the actual situation. Well, it adds local churches and congregations may, according to the actual local situation, carry out relevant peace prayer activities, in a small and decentralized form in line with the local requirements for prevention and control of the new COVID-19 epidemic, to further promote the fine tradition of patriotism and love of religion, and to demonstrate the good image of peace-loving Christianity in China, end quote. While the churches are further required to submit evidence of the relevant activities, text, video, photo materials, to the Media Ministry Department of the China Christian Council by the 10th of September or face consequences according to Bitter Winter. Well, in August, members of the Theological Seminary of Fujian They were also invited to attend a celebration to pay tribute to martyrs of what China dubs People's War of Resistance Against the Japanese Aggression. Prayers were held seeking the intercession of Jesus, the King of Peace, for the peaceful reunification of China, Bitter Winter reported. Now, this is all under the requirements of this three-self church. This explains, at least in part, why there is an underground church in China. Although the uh, Chinese Communist Party requires churches to pray for deceased communist soldiers, Bitter Winter, they note that Christians in China are forbidden to pray for their own martyrs, those whose lives were taken, lost, have been in prison because of the Christian faith, and, the faith rather, and those killed by the Communist Chinese Party. They cannot be commemorated. Well, religious persecution is worsening across China, as President Xi Jinping's Campaign introduced in 2015 seeks to bring religious religion rather under the official atheist party's absolute control and into the into uh, line with Chinese culture. And again, this is why there's an underground church. In May, the Communist Party ordered church affiliated uh, with the government to plan celebrations to mark the 100 years of its existence. In addition to asking religious persons to learn the history of the party, go on a pilgrimage to visit revolutionary sites or hold exhibitions at religious venues, church were required to host events featuring centennial celebrations. Well, the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association in Jianbai, uh, the district of the Chongqing uh, city, uh, subsequently held a grateful and praise uh, for the CCP blessing mass at one of the worship gatherings. The church should or- organically unify love party, love country, love socialism and faith, boldly speak about politics while speaking about faith in accordance with the law. So not according to one's conscience, but in accordance with the law. Ding Yang, who's a priest who officiated the mass, was quoted as saying, Well, Open Doors USA monitors persecution in over 60 countries. They estimate that there are about 97 million Christians in China, a large percentage of whom worship in what China considers to be illegal and unregistered underground churches. However, house church leaders are under intense pressure to join the government-controlled church. Those who refuse face intense persecution, I've met with and talked with many of them who have chosen not to join that church. As the government has installed more than 170 million facial recognition cameras, many in or near churches to identify those who attend worship services. Now, I mentioned that for a number of reasons. Number one, because we are identified with them as being members of one body. But also, I read an article today written by Hannah Nation. She wrote this article and it was published in Christianity Today. And she was reflecting on Afghan Christians. And she says to pray for them, she she looks to China's church, lessons she's learned in praying for and working with the Chinese church. And this is what she writes. Last week, a friend asked me to meet for coffee. She is a young mother. And after seeing the now world-famous image of a young Afghani mother handing her... Uh, Handing away her baby over a barbed wire fence to an American soldier, my friend found herself struggling to emotionally grapple with what she had seen. Though she's been praying consistently for the situation in Afghanistan, as the image continued to loop through her mind, she wanted advice regarding how to be concerned for the suffering church without succumbing to the heavy emotional toll it all took. While working with the Chinese church over the past 16 years, I've had to do some processing and learning after watching brothers and sisters in Christ in another culture context suffer deeply. In December of 2018, I watched as a group of Chinese men and women I have prayed and worshipped with uh, were viciously attacked and jailed, watching their suffering from a distance over the joviality of american christmas deeply impacted my understanding of christ's calling and certainly of his suffering roughly 70 years ago the global church witnessed what was thought to be the end of the church in china similar to what we're witnessing today in afghanistan citizens and especially christians scrambled to leave china after the chinese communist party took over the chinese government persecuted the church in the immediate years following thousands abandoned christ But there was a generation of men and women who laid down their lives as a seed of the Christian uh, church in China. They they remained faithful as individuals and as the corporate church. And when the time was right, the gospel spread across the country in such a way that today the Chinese church is the largest numerical church in the world. Christians in China are estimated to be roughly 5 to 7 percent of the population, a crucial tipping point according to missiologists. Paying attention to the global church causes us to realize just what our brothers and sisters are sacrificing in their walk with Christ. Engaging with the suffering church from Afghanistan to China has discipled my own heart. We must not let our own fear of suffering dictate the narrative, but rather we must be discipled by those in Afghanistan and China and elsewhere. First, my emotions surrounding the suffering church have pressed me to examine what I actually believe about prayer. I've noticed that for many Americans like me, prayer can feel well trite during times of global suffering because we don't believe that prayer is an actual contribution to the situation. I found that I pray because I feel distressed at what I see and read and not out of true conviction that my prayers are part of the objective work of the Holy Spirit. In the life of the church, since watching those I work with suffer in 2018, I have been learning to see my prayer not just as a tool to ease my discomfort, but as my weapon against the forces of evil in this world. One diagnostic question I've asked myself since 2018 is whether I am capable of praying for justice and judgment. God's justice is a theological framework for understanding a force for good in this world and a promise to be fulfilled at the end of time. As our brothers and sisters in China and Afghanistan demonstrate, preaching the gospel is about believing in a God who destroys evil and having the compassion of Christ. If our prayers for the situation in Afghanistan feel empty, then we need to reexamine how we are praying. She goes on to there uh, talking about watching churches she knows suffer and how it's caused her to examine what she believes about the perseverance of the saints. What's happening today is not the end of the story, but do I believe that? And am I praying accordingly as I watched the last American soldier leave Afghanistan? Do I believe that God's best plan for his people did not leave along with that soldier for God himself has not left? I do not want to be trite. This is not a flippant statement to say that. Who is in power doesn't matter, and that our physical realities in this life don't matter. But if our view of church history requires friendly rulers and personal freedom to believe the church can not only survive but grow, then we have a faulty view of God's relationship to his church. Now, she goes in on in the article. You can read it in its entirety at Christianity Today online, and I would encourage you to do so. It puts things into perspective and raises questions that we would do well to ask ourselves as we are praying for the church in Afghanistan and reflecting on how we pray for. And I assume we are praying for the church in China and elsewhere as well. want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend out under the weather today. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and I hope you'll join us tomorrow as Mary Graybar will join us. She's the author of Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook.